Hello again, my Bible study friends. I'm so glad you're here. This episode is both a bonus and a prequel even to our upcoming studies in the book of Exodus. As I've been digging in to prep for our time together, I have found so many things I wanted to share with you to help us transition from Genesis to Exodus. I also want us to lean in more closely to see what's going on for the Israelites as we begin the book. Truthfully, there are so many valuable things for us to hear, so many things discovered, that I decided we would just make time for them in another episode, in an effort to help set us up for what is to come. Plus, spoiler alert here, near the end of today's episode, I will be sharing some information about an upcoming summer break for OOBT. Given that pause, I wanted to get us ready to dive back into Exodus chapters 1-3 through when the podcast returns from this break in early August. I guess that is most certainly one of the benefits of being the podcast host, right? Deciding when and how we move on as we journey through these books of the Bible. Okay, so back to what I have in mind for this prequel to the book of Exodus. How about we just get right to it with a big picture overview and introduction from First Five's Exodus study titled, How Do I Get Through This? The big picture begins. The book of Exodus continues a historical narrative in Genesis, which recorded how the patriarch Jacob and his family came to reside in Egypt's land of Goshen. As you may recall from Genesis chapters 37 through 47, Jacob's sons had sold their brother, the favorite child, to some traveling Midianite traders. Those men took Joseph with them to Egypt, where he unexpectedly rose to power and influence through divine favor with Pharaoh. Meanwhile, a famine in his homeland of Canaan led Jacob to send his sons to Egypt to find more grain. A surprise encounter with their brother, the newly appointed leader over the land, eventually led to forgiveness, a family reunion, and the move of Jacob's descendants to the prospering nation. It's at this point in the story that Exodus picks up and continues the account from Genesis. In the 400 years since the family's migration, Jacob's 70 descendants had grown immensely, but gradually lost the freedom and favor they had once enjoyed during Joseph's reign as second in command. A newly crowned Egyptian king saw their ever-increasing multitude as a threat and tried to gain control by brutally enslaving them. This was just the beginning of his tyranny. His evil edicts escalated until the order to drown all Hebrew baby boys threatened to diminish God's chosen people. All along, God was watching over the plight of his people until it was time to intervene. Remembering his covenant with the patriarchs to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation and extend their blessing, God activated a rescue plan through his chosen leader, mediator, and deliverer, Moses. God had big plans for the Israelites once they left Egypt. He would confirm his covenant relationship and make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. They would construct a tabernacle so God can make his home with them. And eventually Israel would bring the blessings of Abraham and his family to the entire world. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. But first, they would have to learn how to be faithful. Continuing on, a section titled Introducing Exodus reads, Exodus is the second of the first five books in the Bible. This collection, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is traditionally referred to as a Pentateuch, the Torah, or the Law of Moses. Pentateuch comes from two Greek words which translate as five scrolls. Collectively, they document the early history of God's chosen people, their covenant relationship, the forming of a nation through deliverance, and instructions for holy living. In short, the Pentateuch is all about God teaching His people how to live faithfully as He unfolds His plan of salvation, a plan to bring fallen humanity back into fellowship with a holy God. The English title of the book comes from the Greek noun exodos, used in the Septuagint, an early Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made in Egypt during the 3rd century before Christ. Exodus means a going out, exit, or departure. 
It's certainly a logical and appropriate title, since the primary storyline is Israel's divinely orchestrated departure from Egypt. It is also a fitting description of the Israelites' behavior post-Egypt. The newly freed nation repeatedly departed from the path of obedience, holy living, and true worship. Exodus continues the story from Genesis to chronicle the early history of the Hebrew people in Egypt, covering a span of about 85 years. The book documents events from the Israelites' enslavement and the birth of Moses to the completion and dedication of the tabernacle and God's presence filling it with His glory. In the simplest breakdown of Exodus, the first half, chapters 1-18, through 18, records God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, and the second half, chapters 19-40, through 40, covers God's covenant with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. The heart of the book, however, is God making Himself known to the Israelites and the Egyptians and providing a way to dwell in the midst of His beloved people. As a side note of interest here, I found in multiple places of study it referenced that the Israelites may not have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Listen to some excerpts detailing the possible timeline from these other perspectives. A commentary for Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 from the Revised English Version Translation of the Bible reads, Now the time of the sojourn of the children of Israel, who lived in Egypt, was 430 years. Many people read this verse and think that the Israelites spent 430 years in Egypt, but this is not the case. Furthermore, they did not spend 400 years as slaves in Egypt, even though many people think Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 says that. The total length of time from the year that God called Abraham out of Haran until the year of the Exodus when God made the Old Covenant with Israel was 430 years. This quote-unquote hard date is set in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which says, there are 430 years from the promise of Abraham until the law, which was given the year of the exodus from Egypt. In light of that, there is no way Israel spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, as many people believe. The 430-year period from the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, until the exodus, included Abraham's life until Isaac was born, Isaac's life until Jacob was born, Jacob's life until Joseph was born, Joseph's 110-year life, and the slavery in Egypt. As we will see, the slavery lasted no longer than 139 years. The chronology of the Old Testament has been confused by many things. For one thing, too many scholars rely on the accepted Egyptian chronology to guide them, instead of the biblical chronology, despite the fact that there's very good evidence that the accepted Egyptian dates are wrong. Also, the way some of the verses in the Hebrew text are written, it is easy to get the wrong impression from them unless one takes the time to study the specifics of the chronology of the Old Testament to see how they fit with the scope of Scripture. Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 and Exodus chapter 12 verse 40 are some of the verses that can be confusing. Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 and Acts chapter 7 verse 6 say the length of time between Abraham's seed and the Exodus is 400 years. And this supports the 430-year number as being the time between God's promise to Abraham and Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 through 4 until the Exodus. It is good that God repeats the number 400 a couple of times because at first glance it seems wrong. If the total time between God's promise to Abraham and the Exodus was 430 years, and the time between Abraham's seed and the Exodus was 400 years, then time between the promise and the seed is 30 years. But God made the promise to Abraham when he was 75, as found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. But Isaac was born when Abraham was 100, Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, which is only 25 years, not 30. So how did we get the extra five years? In this case, the counting of the years of the seed of Abraham that would inherit the promise does not start with the birth of Isaac, 
but the weaning of Isaac. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And until Isaac was weaned, Ishmael, the elder of the two, seemed to be legitimately in line to inherit the promise. But at the weaning feast of Isaac, God made it clear that Ishmael was to be sent away, and Isaac was established as the real seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 21, verses 8-13 through 13. Thus the counting of the seed of Abraham, i.e. when Isaac was established as the seed, starts at Isaac's weaning feast when God told Abraham, It is through Isaac that your seed will be called. Genesis chapter 21, verse 12 Admittedly, there is no verse that gives Isaac to age as five years old when he was weaned and Abraham put on the weaning feast. But God expects us to use wisdom and knowledge in interpreting Scripture. And there are several places in the chronology of the Old Testament where God gives us outside parameters and expects us to fill in some of the details from the scope of Scripture. This is one of those cases. And a number of competent Bible scholars have noted that Isaac would have been five years old when God told Abraham that he was the heir. In summary, God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and told him to go into the land which I will show you. But there is no record that God gave Abraham a promise at that time. Genesis chapter 11 verse 31, Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 7, and Acts chapter 7 verses 2 and 3. When Abraham was 75 and living in the land of Haran, God made a promise to him that he would inherit the land. Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 and 3. And Abraham got up and went into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Isaac was weaned thirty years after God promised the land to Abraham, and at the weaning feast, God told Abraham that his seed would be called an Isaac. Thus, there are four hundred years from the seed to the Exodus. Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 and Acts chapter 7 verse 6. So we see that the total length of time between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus was four hundred and thirty years, as referenced in Exodus chapter 12 verse 40 and Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Also, the length of time between Abraham's seed, the weaning of Isaac, and the Exodus was 400 years, Acts chapter 7, verse 6, and Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Let's continue on to consider the question, how long were the Israelites slaves in Egypt? The Bible does not give us an exact number of years, but we can make an educated guess. There is a gap of years between the death of Joseph and the birth of Moses, and Israel's slavery started in that gap which we will see is 59 years. There are 139 years from the death of Joseph to the Exodus, so 139 is the absolute maximum that Israel could have been in slavery. Moses was 80 at the Exodus and was born in slavery, so the maximum years of slavery minus 80 years of Moses' life give us 59 years as a gap between Joseph's death and Moses' birth. And it was during that gap that Israel's slavery started. But the slavery did not start the year Joseph died, nor did it start the year that Moses was born. Sometime in the 59 years between Joseph's death and Moses' birth, Israel was enslaved. So how long after Joseph died did the slavery start? The Bible does not say, but it does say that the Pharaoh who knew Joseph died, and a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph had come to the throne, became fearful of Israel, and then enslaved them. If we assume Pharaoh's death and replacement took 30 years, then that would mean Israel was enslaved for 29 years before Moses was born. So we can add the 29 years to the 80 years of Moses' life in slavery, which would make Israel's slavery in Egypt 109 years. Or, if we say the death of Pharaoh and replacing him took 20 years, then Israel's slavery would have been 119 years. Given the parameters, perhaps a period of slavery of 100 to 120 years would be an appropriate estimate. And that is still a long time to be in slavery and for Israel to remember their hard slavery in Egypt. In the calculations above, 
we see the actual chronology of the time between God's promise to Abraham and the Exodus and the giving of the law to Moses. To fully understand Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, it is imperative that we translate it correctly. The King James Version translates it as, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel, who dwelt in Egypt, was 430 years. To properly interpret this verse, we must understand the phrase, who dwelt in Egypt, does not describe the 430-year period, but rather is a description of the children of Israel. They are the ones who live in Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 verse 40 should not be interpreted to mean that the children of Israel spent 430 years in Egypt. Instead, it can be translated as, Now the time of the sojourn of the children of Israel, who lived in Egypt, was 430 years. Read that way, it is the sojourn of the children of Israel that was 430 years. It was not Israel's time in Egypt that was 430 years. The sojourn of the children of Israel started when God promised Abraham the land, and so he went into it. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-4, through 4, God stopped counting the years of the sojourn at the Exodus, at which time he began to count the years of another period of Israel's history. The 480 years from the Exodus until Solomon started building the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 should be read and understood in the same basic way as Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, in that there is a parenthesis in the verse. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 says, And he said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will live as foreigners in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them. 400 years. As with Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, this verse is not, indeed cannot be saying, that Israel will be enslaved for 400 years. It is saying the people of Israel will live in a land that is not theirs for 400 years, and at some point during that period, they will serve and be enslaved. And that is what happened. God promised Abraham and his descendants the land, and then Abraham traveled there, but he did not get to take possession of it, and neither did his descendants. They lived as foreigners there and in Egypt until after the Exodus, when Joshua conquered the land. They are commonly but mistakenly understood to read Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 contradicts Exodus chapter 12 verse 40. That is because if Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years, as Exodus 12:40 seems to say, but they were enslaved for 400 years, as Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 seems to say in most versions. Then the period of slavery would be too long, and Genesis 15:13 and Exodus 12:40 would contradict each other. Here is why: If the people of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years and were enslaved for 400 years, that leaves only 30 years when the Israelites were not slaves. But Joseph was 30 when he was taken before Pharaoh and given rule over Egypt. And then there were seven years of plenty and two years of famine when Jacob and the people of Israel came into Egypt. Joseph would have been 39, Genesis chapter 45, verse 6. Then Joseph's family lived with him in Egypt until he died at 110, Genesis chapter 50, verse 26. But that means they lived with Joseph for 71 years before he died. 110 minus 39 equals 71. So even if the slavery started that very year, the longest the slavery could have been was 359 years, or 430 minus 71 equals 359. But we know it took some time after Joseph died for Israel to be enslaved. If it took only 10 years, that would leave only 349 years of slavery. But the common reading of Genesis 15.13 is that the slavery was 400 years. So the traditional reading of Genesis 15.13 does not even fit with the traditional reading of Exodus 12.40. Phew, that is a lot to process. So feel free to go back and listen to all that if you need to. I actually read it through three or four times myself when studying before I started to catch on. Too many numbers for this English and journalism major for sure. 
Give me all the words and not the numbers, right? However, what I feel we can take from this additional viewpoint is this. Whether the timeline of the years started after Joseph's death or all the way back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis, this we can know with certainty. If the wait was 430, 400, 139, 119, or even 109 years, any time spent waiting on God is hard, feels extremely long, and often causes us to grow weary in the wait. But what we can know from these verses found in Genesis, Exodus, and in Acts and Galatians in the New Testament even, what we can know with 100% certainty is that God is a promise keeper and actively working in the wait. Scratch that. God is most definitely at work in the wait, my friends. I promise He is. We also see through Pharaoh's oppression, in fact, even because of it, God raises up the deliverer for his people, a man named Moses, whom God uses to save his people, deliver them from death, and bring them into relationship with him. Exodus lets us see behind the scenes of suffering and hopelessness. It shows us that even when things look so terrible that they must be outside of God's plan, God is still working to provide for his people and make good on his promises. There is actually another place in the Bible that feels very similar to turning the page from Genesis to Exodus. It is when we turn the page from what we know as the Old Testament to the New Testament. God's people are again far from their promised land and under oppression from a foreign power. There are around 400 years of waiting. All this time has passed, and people are still waiting on the promise God made to Eve to be fulfilled. And what happens when we turn the page and read the first words of Matthew in the New Testament? We see a genealogy, just as we will read in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1-5. through 5. The point here in the genealogy found in the book of Matthew is to show us that God has made good on His promise to Eve, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Jesus has come from this same family tree. Jesus is the one descendant of Eve who defeats evil and brings us back to live with God. Much like the story of Israel and Egypt, in Jesus, God's plan was accomplished through suffering. There was a murderous king a flight to Egypt, rejection by his people, mockery and torture by the political powers, and ultimately death on a cross. But through these, Jesus showed that God's plan was still working, even in the worst circumstances. Oh my, let's hear that last line one more time to be sure we didn't miss this crucial point. Jesus showed that God's plan was still working, even in the worst circumstances. Thank you, God, that you were always working. No matter what the circumstances around us look like, nor how long we have waited to see evidence of your plan and presence. Please give us eyes to see that you work all things, even the worst things, together for good. I so love this, yet one more very hard but very good truth about our Father God. Moving on, now listen to some resources I found highlighting something that stood out to me when reading in Exodus chapter 2, most specifically in verse 25. It reads, God saw the Israelites, and God knew. How touching it is to read these words. God knew. God knows. So comforting. The She Reads Truth Exodus reading plan devotional titled, Israel Oppressed in Egypt, has this to say about that verse. That wording. And God knew. Do you know that feeling when something really emotional happens, but you aren't in a safe place or time to process it? Maybe you're at school or work or the grocery store and somehow you hold that emotion in and go about your day. Until. Until you see someone who knows you, really knows you, someone who loves you, someone who understands you inside and out. And what happens? Immediate tears. Immediate permission to feel what you've been trying to avoid feeling. I'm not a psychologist, 
and I can't explain all the reasons for this phenomenon of the human experience, but for me, I think this is because the feeling of being truly seen and still loved is so rare. When we experience it, our defenses drop. For a moment, we embrace the type of intimacy we were created for. When I read the book of Exodus, there are three words that captivate me every time. They aren't found in the likely places, the stories of the burning bush, the Red Sea crossing, or the wilderness wandering. They come before all that, amid the years of oppression of God's people that they endured under Egypt's heavy hand. In this seemingly endless period of suffering, we come upon Exodus chapter 2, verse 25. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. And God knew. What a wonderful, weighty truth. The same God who spoke I am from the burning bush, who parted the sea, who rained down bread in exact measure from heaven, is also the God who knows. He knows our circumstances and our hearts, our past and our future. He sees us. He hears us. He knows us. And He not only knows, He acts. We learn from the whole scripture that our God is working all things together for His glory and our good, in the book of Exodus and in our right now lives. We serve a God of response. Each new season and circumstance are new opportunities to depend on His provision. As you journey through the miraculous accounts in the book of Exodus, put your feet on the ground with God's people. Imagine how it felt to cry out from Egypt, from the shore of the Red Sea, from the vast wilderness and the base of Mount Sinai. See what scripture has to teach you about the unchanging character of the God who knows. As we read these crucial chapters in the redemption story, I pray we find confidence and rest in the one who created us to live in relationship with him. And the first five, how do I get through this study in Exodus, has this to say about Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, which reads, After a long time the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. These verses hold so much encouragement for our hearts when we wonder if God hears our cries for help. We are reminded that God hears, He sees, He knows. We find the hope of a God who hears and responds throughout Scripture. Let's read a few other passages first and then take a closer look at them. Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Psalm chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. The Hebrew word for turned in both Psalm 41, Psalm 116-2, is natah, and it means to stretch out, extend, spread out, pitch, turn, pervert, incline, bend, or bow. And then the Hebrew word for accepts in Psalm 6-9 is lakah, and can mean to take, get, fetch, lay hold of, seize, receive. So not only does God hear our prayers, He turns and leans in close to listen. And not only does the God of the universe listen to us closely, He takes our prayers in His hands. How does it comfort you today to know that our God has not changed? He still hears. He still sees. He still knows. And our lives are safe in His hands. Did you hear that, my friends? Not only does God hear, God see, and God know, but He also remembers His promises. Verse 24 reads, 
and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amazing. Simply amazing to consider what that means. The word remembered when used here does not mean that God had forgotten about them. He never forgot, of course. The term means that he began to act on his covenant promises. While thinking of our God as a promise keeper, let's consider these perspectives from the first five Exodus study, which begins in Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Four hundred years had passed since Joseph moved his family to Egypt, Genesis chapter 50. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 describes the amazing population explosion that occurred during those years. The sons of Israel were exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, and increased in numbers. In fact, they had grown to over two million. Why is that significant? Let's revisit God's conversation with Abraham in Genesis 17. Then I will make the covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. Did you notice that incredible similarity between Exodus 1-6 and the words spoken by God to Abraham? They reveal the absolute faithfulness of God to honor his promises. But what is difficult about this is that it seems the fulfillment of those promises to grow in numbers in Genesis 17 led to the enslavement of God's people. Their increased numbers instilled fear in Pharaoh. He feared they would upset the balance of power and he would lose control. And when slavery didn't reduce their numbers, the king of Egypt took more extreme measures and commanded Egyptian midwives to kill newborn Israelite boys. Did God lead his people into these cruel circumstances where they felt abandoned and forgotten by him? It certainly appeared that way to the Israelites when they examined the facts. God asked them to exchange the security and comfort of the known for the unknown, and once there, their lives dramatically changed for the worst. Why did God allow this pain and suffering in the lives of His chosen people? Because our all-knowing God always sees a bigger picture and has a greater purpose. He uses our times of trial and hardship to purge sin from our lives, to strengthen our walk with Him, and to force us to depend on Him, to bind us together in community, and to cause us to know and trust Him more. Isaiah speaks this truth clearly in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. In the NIV it reads, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. God knew the best place and best way for His people to grow in strength and numbers, and early admission to the land that had been promised to them through Abraham wasn't it. And God knew that in the midst of their enslavement, They would experience His power, see His glory, and draw closer to Him. Don't we too have our own Egypts? Times when we feel oppressed, forgotten, burdened beyond what we think we can bear. Like the Israelites, it's those times that should draw us closer to our God, the promise keeper, who honors His word and fulfills it without exception. Adding to the idea of our God as a promise keeper, the 40 Days Through the Bible, Proverbs 31 Studies, Slavery in Egypt section reads, The increase in Joseph's family reveals the absolute faithfulness of our God to honor His word. What's hard to comprehend is that the fulfillment of His promise led to the enslavement of God's people in Egypt. But God knew what the Israelites didn't. If they had remained where they had settled before going to Egypt, they would have intermarried and aligned themselves religiously and politically with the unbelieving and idolatrous people of that land, including the Canaanites, Moabites, and Hittites. The Bible calls these people pagans. In biblical times, a pagan referred to those who will worship many gods 
or to self-indulgent people who rejected Jehovah as the one true God. God knew, if left where they were, His holy set-apart people would have absorbed into the pagan culture, forgetting who and whose they were. No matter what happened in Egypt, God's good and perfect plan would stand. The plan that God would eventually bring His people into Canaan, the land God promised to Abraham. Not even the wickedness and cruelty the Egyptians inflicted upon the Israelites could thwart the plan God had set forth before time began. It could not nullify the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's hard to understand how enslavement, this depth of cruelty and suffering, could be allowed by God to accomplish His plan for His people. Yet it was. Have you ever asked, why has God allowed this? God, how can this be your plan? I know I have. If we want to walk closely with God, we must keep our minds fixed on one significant character trait of our God, His sovereignty. John Piper summarizes God's sovereignty like this. God's sovereignty is His right and power to do all that He decides to do. So though our circumstances sometimes make no sense, if God's sovereignty is true and God controls all things, including our stories, then there are no accidents. As we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 25 through 26, and Psalm 139, for more insight into God's involvement in and over our lives, we learn, God has no needs. God gives breath and life to everything. He satisfies every need. God created all nations, how they rise and fall, and has determined the boundaries. And God knows us intimately and is with us always. For sure, God's sovereignty is not limited to the Old Testament. His sovereignty is part of who He is. So is love. God is sovereign and God is love. His sovereignty is wrapped in His love. So much love that God willingly surrendered His one and only Son to reveal that love. God suffered and grieved, executing His own plan of redemption as He watched the soldiers lay His beloved Son on the cross and hammer the nails in one by one. God sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to free us, just as He freed the Israelites. He freed us from the slavery of sin and death we are born into because of Adam and Eve's choices in Genesis chapter 3. The way to freedom is believing in Jesus. The way to freedom is to confess our sin and turn to Jesus to forgive that sin and bring us into an everlasting, loving relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Oh friend, tuck this image of the cross deep within your heart for those times you ask, God, how can this be your plan? Remember what God did in Christ Jesus, He did for you. Trust may not come in the moment, but it will settle into your heart as you come to know and trust God's love and character more deeply. God has good plans for us, just as He did for Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Israel. In thinking of this irony we find in Exodus and God leading the Israelites into slavery, consider this from God's Unbreakable Promises study in a section titled God Provides. Sometimes provision doesn't look like protection. We didn't get the job we wanted. A relationship didn't work out. Our plans were interrupted. What is provided for us falls short of what we hoped and dreamed. Is there a grief and lament to this? Absolutely. In addition, there may be a protection that we weren't aware of. When famine hit the people of Israel, God prepared a place with food and provision for them. He made a way for Joseph to care for his family and the nation of Israel. So Abraham's descendants, now people known as the Israelites or Hebrews, moved into Egypt. Genesis chapter 50 verses 22 through 26. The Israelites flourished in Egypt. They thrived so much that they became a threat to the new Pharaoh in power. To curb their growing strength, Pharaoh forced the Israelites to be the slave laborers of Egypt. 
Not only were they slaves, but because they were so numerous, Pharaoh tried to cut off any possible uprising through the infant side of every young Israelite boy. Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 and 22. What a twist and turn. Famine and flourishing, and now infanticide and slavery. In the midst of this, we find some amazing women, midwives who honored God, a mother who trusted the future of her newborn son to God, a sister who shrewdly watched her baby brother land in the arms of a person in power, and a baby boy who was then raised in the care of a woman in power. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This boy would be the one God would call to lead his people. The Exodus story could not exist without failure and frustration, but God's faithfulness and protection would carry the Israelites, just as God's faithfulness and protection had carried the people before. Eventually, Moses would have the conversation with God on Mount Sinai, and God would say to him in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. In addition to being for the people of Israel, God's faithfulness would continue so that others might know his great love and mercy. Okay, friends, if there's one thing we can hold on to, it's that God never forgets his promises. We may have to wait for them to be fulfilled, but God never forgets his covenant and he never forgets us. Consider all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. God warned Abraham that some of his descendants would live as enslaved foreigners. Even though they'd be impressed for 400 years, God said that he would judge the nation they served. Israel had been groaning for generations, but God was faithful to act on their behalf in his perfect timing. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. For us, it may only take a few days before we start to wonder if God hears us. We see in these verses that God actively remembered Israel, remembered his promises. He heard their cries, and he acted in his perfect timing. And in both instances of waiting, we see the beginning of God's rescue plan to the birth of a baby. In one, the birth of Moses, and the other, the birth of Jesus. Well, more on that to come in our studies in Exodus, I promise. And can I just say, oh my goodness, right here? Our God hears, He sees, He knows. With these truths in mind, how about we move into our time of prayer? Father God, as we begin our studies in the book of Exodus, we come to you in prayer that you help us grasp what we are reading on the thin, crinkly pages of our Bibles. Give us insight to understand the historical context, the people and culture it was written for, and the spiritual truths found in Exodus. Most importantly, though, Father God, we ask you help us see your character and to discover Jesus throughout it all in our study times together. May the stories of rescue, redemption, and the relationship with you as found in Exodus inspire us to seek freedom from our own struggles, embrace transformation, and deepen our connection with you. As we explore the stories of Moses, the burning bush, the plagues, and the journey through the wilderness, remind us of the importance of obedience, faith, and trust in your story, your plan, both then and now. In Exodus, we see you as our God who keeps his promises, who hears our cries, sees our circumstances, and intervenes when necessary. Exodus also reveals a God who performs miracles, parts seas, quenches thirsts, satisfies hunger, sustains the weary, and longs to make his home with his people. Help us to not get lost in the many details of the laws, commandments, and rituals in Exodus. Help us to see how they relate to our lives today and how they can shape our character and relationships. Exodus will show us that you never intended for your people to remain trapped in our sin or sufferings. The Israelites' deliverance from slavery was a foretaste of the freedom and victory Jesus secured for all believers. 
Thank you, Jesus. Help us hold on to your promises, Father God, promise keeper, way maker, miracle worker, light in the darkness. That is who you are and who we will see on the pages of the book of Exodus. Help us all trust in Moses' words found in Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, which read, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The God of Israel, the same God we worship and serve today, you set your heart on each one of us before the beginning of time. And even when unbelief, doubts, or sin lead us astray, thank you that you pursue us with a love that won't let go. Oh, thank you, Father God. God, we ask you to enable us to know you more, that you will reveal yourself to us as we read through the book of Exodus. Help us to lay aside all the things we have learned before and that you will teach us new. A fresh reading in our study time as OOBTers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we close out today's episode, let's take a quick listen to the sneak peek of what is to come in the book of Exodus from the Jesus Bible. It begins, The book of Exodus describes a climatic moment in the life of the people of God, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand of the Lord. The population of Israel in Exodus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. These people, whom God had called as his chosen ones, and their descendants serve as a central focus throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. God called Moses, the main character in Exodus, to lead the people out of Egypt. In spite of Moses' initial protests to God, Moses approached the hard-hearted Pharaoh and implored him to release God's people from slavery. When Pharaoh refused, God began his process of deliverance, demonstrating the scope of his might and power. Following his work of deliverance, God gave his people the law so they could understand how they should respond to God's grace and fulfill their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as found in chapter 19, verse 6. The first section of Exodus, chapters 1 through 18, describes in glorious detail the way that God prevailed over the greatest world power at the time, the nation of Egypt. Through his miraculous might, God demonstrated his supremacy over the false gods of the nations and the sinful hearts of kings. The Hebrew people continually recounted the wonders of God's might throughout the book of Exodus, and in fact, still celebrate this deliverance today. The second section, chapters 19 through 40, outlines the law of God given as a benevolent gift of grace by a personal God to his chosen people. They represent his unique nature and character, demonstrating that God is righteous holy in all things, and rightly deserving of the worship of those whom he has saved. The book ends with the completion of the tabernacle, which stands at the center of their encampment and the central place of worship for God's people throughout their journey in the wilderness. The book of Exodus portrays Moses as a God-ordained redeemer of the people of God. For this reason, he serves as a type of Messiah, a precursor to the one who will come, Jesus Christ. Like Moses, Jesus would serve in three roles, as a prophet, communicating God's word to his people, as a priest, making it possible for humankind to worship God rightly, and as a king, leading the people from slavery into safety. The historical events of the book, such as the Passover, prefigure the atoning work of Christ for the sins of his people. Christ is the perfect sacrifice, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, and the one who breaks the shackles of sin and delivers his people forever. So with that overview of where we are heading in mind, my friends, I'll be back here to study with all of you in early August. And yes, you did hear that right, my OOBTers. Please remember that our next episode release will be on Wednesday, August 9th, as together we dive into Exodus chapters 1 through 3. OOBT is going to be taking a pause during the remainder of the summer season to allow me the time and space to be fully present with my family as we finish out summer 2023. To be fully present more moments than not whether at the pool or at the beach on vacation. 
plus any and all of the things in between. I hope you find those moments to connect more fully with those you love in the coming weeks as well. Here's to more lazy, hazy days of summer for all of us. So, until the release of episode number 44 in early August, I am wishing you all the best in making some summer memories with your people, my friends. Now, with all that said, if you are loving this show, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review. Also, please be sure to tell your friends as that is the number one way people find out about OOBT. It's because you tell them, and for that I am so very thankful. Please be sure to join me right here in August as we once again dive into the pages of God's Word together, one chapter at a time, this time in the book of Exodus. And as one last thing before I go, here's just a random thought. Maybe this summer break of sorts is a great opportunity for playing catch-up on my OOBT episodes that you may have missed or even re-listened to previous episodes. Whether the first two why and how episodes or really any of them at all, you could binge OOBT on the beach, in the car, on your lunch break, while doing dishes and dinner prep. Truthfully, anywhere life takes you in July. Well, you get the idea, am I right? This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.